Hello everyone and welcome back to Indian Genes. My guest today was awarded the Emerging Space Leader in 2017 by the International Astronautical Federation and was elected as a member of the International Institute of Space Law. He is a co-founder at SatSearch and founded his first company, Dhruva Space, way back in 2012. He has a PhD from the Frederick Alexander University in Germany and a Master's in Space Technology from Sweden. In addition to this, he has a Master's in Space Techniques and Instrumentation from France. He has previously worked on research projects with the Indian Institute of Astrophysics and the DLR Institute of Space Systems in Germany. With a resume like that behind him, I don't think I could have got anybody more equipped to talk to us today about space, the future of space, technologies related to space, as well as opportunities that should be coming up in the private sector. He's very involved with ISRO. We do talk about that as well. We had a great time talking. This was one of my favorite uh, interactions that I've had. So you're going to be in for a great time. And I now present to you my extremely engaging and very informative conversation with Narayan Prasad. Hi, Narayan, and a very big welcome to you from Indian Genes. Thank you so much for sparing your time to be here with us. This, in a way, is a first of its kind for us here at Indian Genes because we do normally record directly from our studios. But because of the corona lockdown, we are trying virtual conferencing at the moment. So thank you for your patience. Uh, Narayan, as you know, that uh, this podcast is aimed at promoting science uh, and education, keeping people curious. A lot of our listeners are university students and non-experts. So we have a lot to ask you about space because I think this episode is quite timely with all the news that we've been reading recently. But before we get there, Narayan, uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. How did you get started and how did you get into this particular space? Thank you very much, Joachim, for uh, having me as a guest. Uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. To begin with, my story is not unlike many of the other space uh, sector guys who had childhood dreams of having uh, satellites and rockets built and so on. So I actually entered the space sector by accident because a few friends of mine asked a question that can we build kind of drones together and we did that for a couple of years and then an opportunity came by to work on a satellite mission with the Indian Institute of Astrophysics. And uh, that was during my undergraduate days. And since then, you know, space uh, was something like a drug to me and I got hooked to it. And for the last 10 years, I've been, you know, working in this realm. Uh, that's super cool. And uh, you actually went from building do drones directly to astrophysics. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot that we can catch up uh, about that journey. You also had something very interesting that you founded in 2012 called uh, Dhruva Space. Uh, would you want to tell us a little bit more? So what happened uh, in 2012 uh, is, uh, as I said, you know, during my undergraduate days, we were involved in these microsatellites or these small satellite projects with the Indian Institute of Astrophysics. And uh, essentially, after that, I came here to Europe, where I studied in uh, Germany, Sweden, and France. And along with a friend of mine, we thought... Uh, ISRO is not really building any of these small satellites. ISRO was building, you know, satellites of the size of a bus, for example, mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, satellites of the size of uh, several uh, refrigerators put together. And uh, essentially, we thought that uh, these shoebox-sized satellites or small satellites 
uh, was was something that was very complementary to what uh, ISRO was building. And uh, there could be several interesting missions that one could build with such a form factor and uh, several niche applications that could be done. And uh, that was the reason why we kind of returned back to India after our studies and started through our space with the vision that we could be, you know, the pioneers of uh, building such uh, a small spacecraft and get this revolution of having uh, industry build complete satellites in India. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Very interesting. And, and especially because you mentioned uh, a new space. I think the the term, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of our listeners will probably get used to the term new space. But uh, what is your understanding? Because I think new space was or is more of a movement or a, or a philosophy talking about uh, the global emerging private space industry. Is that how you guys at the expert levels also use this term? Essentially, new space is a movement of uh, moving away from the government and uh, integrating yourself into businesses and markets. So traditionally, what has happened with the space sector, as you know, is uh, militaries were early involved in the very early days of space. And uh, essentially, the governments were the sole customers of uh, space-related activities for a very, very long time. And even if you look at uh, the Indian space program today, a lot of the activities is just industry working with the government in for procurement and in most cases, ISRO or the government is the sole customer of the industry. And the whole idea of new space is that there is a market that is out there where people can do B2B kind of businesses or build applications that businesses can absorb or directly people can absorb. And the other bit is, of course, that uh, the funding for this uh, can come also privately uh, so that there is no government subsidy involved in all of the activities so that it becomes a very well-established industry, like, for example, how the aviation industry has established in the last uh, 100 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that very interesting, and we will come back to a little bit later, because just the opportunity that uh, I see in the private sector for something like space is huge, because this is absolutely a new field that's going to open up to a lot of people who are going to be interested, and that's why I think this particular conversation is going to clear a lot of things for a lot of people listening in. And uh, I think one of the best places maybe we could start uh, for us to put ourselves to this is we would like to understand, we do hear about space agencies, we hear about NASA, ISRO, ISA. Uh, what, what according to you is the current scenario, if you'd like to just break this down for, 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 for a lot of my listeners, where does this compliance hierarchy of laws, legislations, who looks after this? Is there something for space? And how do government agencies operate within this environment? Right, so that's a fairly complex question. So I'll try to break it down as simply as possible. Unlike sure. many other uh, you know, laws and uh, treaties, for example, you know, many countries might agree that this is the border between my country and your country, although the border is not really visible. Uh, to anyone out there, right? So it's an imaginary line that two countries agree that this is the border between us two. Uh, And unfortunately, nobody has agreed where space begins with officially in the entire world. You know, Mm -hmm. so they, some people say it's 100 kilometers, some people say there's some other definition to this, but there's been no international agreement on where space begins. 
And that's just the beginning of the problem when countries deal with uh, space-related issues. Historically, for example, if an aircraft uh, flew over your territory and you did not authorize the aircraft to fly over your, your territory, you could shoot it down. But in the 1950s, this was a legal challenge as well, as well as, you know, a very complicated challenge in policy. If somebody would fly their satellite on your territory, I mean, any object that is in space will obviously fly over somebody else's territory for sure. Is that a, a threat that uh, you're flying an object without uh, somebody else's permission? That was a very big question in the 1950s. So these things are very unique to space. And today, you know, people basically have agreed that uh, uh, space is kind of the common heritage of my, mankind. And, you know, people uh, cannot appropriate that uh, somebody who goes and plants uh, their flag on the moon is theirs uh, and nobody else's. Uh, and other celestial bodies, for example. So these things are now kind of uh, the common heritage of mankind. And essentially, people are trying to see how sustainably space can be utilized so that all countries uh, benefit at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting because in a way you, you are saying that we are pretty much starting from a blank slate. So I think over the next uh, few years, besides missions that are actually being planned or developments within private or government space agencies. I think the legislation part of it, if not got right at this very early stage, seems to be a very important uh, factor as well, right? Because you've got to be able to control this, like you said, if there's no border and we don't define some rules early, it could get, uh, you could get into areas that will be difficult to manage uh, a little later on. Right, absolutely. So there are, of course, you know, the national laws are, uh, you know, within the boundaries of that country. For example, the US has passed a law that says anybody, for example, going to moon and can create some objects there or uh, is able to mine something of value there can bring back to the earth and appropriate that and sell it, for example. Right. And that's a law that US has passed on its own and uh, no other country has uh, done that, and it applies to U.S. Uh, companies. But there is no such uh, law, for example, in India, and no other country in the world has taken such a radical step. Uh, so it really depends on what priorities uh, do policymakers and lawmakers see uh, around the world and how aggressive they are about uh, you know, pursuing space as an industry. Right, and you mentioned about the U.S. law because... I think uh, uh, recently, they, they in, in line with that, they also passed a very interesting executive order where mining on the moon or space uh, would be something they would oppose if it was another country. And I think India is probably one of the only 18 countries that signed this agreement somewhere in 1979 and, and, and Russia or China or US were not part of it. Do we need to relook at this agreement or are we caught up in this? Essentially, you are talking about the moon agreement uh, which is a part of the legacy of the international laws that uh, you know were the were formed as a part of the early days of space exploration. The Moon Agreement essentially states that uh, you know Moon is also uh, like the common heritage of mankind, and people, uh, for example, if they establish a base, all the countries have equal access to it, and if somebody is going to mine it or uh, you know do something uh, on the Moon, then uh, you know everybody has equal access to it, and. Uh, will be able to investigate. Those were very kind of overview level uh, agreements that uh, 
uh, people thought uh, that, you know, given that people stepped on the moon in the 1960s, that in 10 years time, people will be living then living on the moon routinely. So, but then mm. that did not happen. But mm. during the time, the trajectory of the technology was so fast that uh, they thought this was an interesting uh, law to have so that uh, no country feels that uh, they are left behind or that somebody else or some bunch of countries are appropriating the moon without uh, other countries having access to it. Mm, very interesting. And uh, just sticking to the legislation part still, what currently do you think is the way forward? Of course, there has to be collaboration because I think moving to space form here is is going to be very difficult uh, in the current scenario or what we see coming up if there's no collaboration. So what would your framework be? So essentially, the major threat for space exploration is just uh, collisions in space and uh, you know, weapons in space, uh, collisions in frequencies and so on. So collisions in space uh, can be solved by kind of having a very good picture of what is out there in outer space and uh, having technology that uh, can enable countries to know where are the space objects more transparently. And that's something that is not present today. So for example, objects of up to five centimeters big can be tracked by the US currently. And some other countries have that kind of capability too, but objects that are of lower size are very challenging to track. So space debris is one of the biggest uh, threat to space exploration. And that's where I see a lot of, uh, you know, international collaboration needed where uh, we can know transparently where objects are there and how they're flying. You know, this is also very well established in the aviation world, right? Because you have uh, multiple countries uh, collaborating between each other to know where an aircraft is flying and they hand off each other between their own airspaces and so on. So countries can build capabilities in their own uh, space, as in on, the, on land with radars and so on, and look at their part of space and kind of put a global picture of what is out there in outer space. The second bit, as I said, is... Uh, about weapons in space and using space for military means. So if you start weaponizing space and you start putting weapons of mass destruction or even weapons that can destroy kind of satellites, then uh, things start to escalate and you will create uh, you know, a very hazardous environment in space which may not be very conducive for commercial utility in the future. And it may also become very hard for somebody to escape the Earth's uh, atmosphere to, I mean, the immediate Earth's, uh, you know, boundary around space and go into mm. other planets or other asteroids or so on. So keeping it clean and keeping it uh, for the, uh, for other entrepreneurs to come up with, uh, you know, potential to explore uh, moon and other places, that needs that the military aspect of space is limited and it's mostly used for uh, gathering information rather than to conduct, uh, you know, so, you know, tests that destroy satellites physically or so on. The third bit is, uh, you know, if you are using the satellites and your frequencies collide and you are uh, shooting, you know, uh, lasers against each other or something like that. Um, so the frequency bit is already quite controlled because you have the International Telecommunications Union that makes sure that uh, you two frequencies, uh, you know, the satellites were operating in the frequencies, they don't uh, kind of interfere with each other or interfere with ground-based sources. That, that's quite well uh, covered at the moment. But the first two are the major threats I would say, for uh, sustainability. Right. And you did mention uh, space debris as well. Is that at any level that we need to be worried about at the moment or we have time before we can do what we are doing? 
So the question is, you know, how do we, how well do we know what is out there? Uh, unfortunately, you know, we don't have the answer for that uh, because uh, uh, there's very little knowledge uh, in in the world today on what are the small pieces. So, for example, you know, a few years ago, even a piece of paint uh, hit the International Space Station, and uh, you know, a piece of paint, for example, is flying at eight kilometers per second, and when it hits uh, the International Space Station, it causes a leak. in the pressure and you if if just a fleck of paint can cause such damage imagine what uh, you know a piece of uh, metal can do the next point that you were mentioning and you were talking about the militarization of space or getting uh, weapons out there i don't know the kind of signal it also sends because space is new to us and if in a sequence of events it shows our intention and we start with military operations uh, that then tells us are we exploring for a uh, military use are we exploring for socio economic use uh, science humanity how how does that in sequence of moving forward if we go in with militarization let's say of particular areas uh, i mean in my own mind at the moment i i think that limits the ability for somebody to freely think outside what is possible absolutely you are uh, 100% right so again you know the aviation world offers a very good parallel to us here because you know in the 1930s and the 40s when aviation was looked at as a heavily military technology you had a lot of innovation come into aircrafts people trying to build long distance transatlantic aircraft that could carry bombs and drop these bombs and after the the world war 2 you had all these military pilots who had the skill to fly aircraft but essentially no you know real job because the the war had settled and you had this pool of talent and uh, the technology available right for uh, long distance travel and that you see is how the commercial aircraft and commercial aviation took off and today you know uh, i saw an image of for example a cabin uh, from uh, you know about 80 years ago and it literally had like wooden chairs on which people would uh, sit down and and nothing else uh, there and people would sit and smoke while the uh, air, aircraft would move but today the experience is a whole different lot and you don't even see you don't even feel like you're uh, traveling anymore because the the experience is so smooth and uh, and that's where you know space has to mature as an industry i would say uh, what the aviation sector was in the 1930s or the 1940s is where we are seeing space as an industry today that that's a great analogy and uh, taking form there uh, we we do know that of for collaborated missions to happen uh, let's say whether it's between russia or, or the us or japan or china or india or whatever uh, do we at the, like in aviation we have english that uh, is commonly used as for example the atc in any country would communicate in that language because that has been defined as the aviation language but that now that we are this early in uh, space exploration for example example you have people from two different uh, countries probably on a mission uh, is that a, a challenge is it something that has come up before or do you see that that can be overcome so it's an interesting question because uh, it depends on the kind of mission because if it's a satellite that for example india is building with japan the engineers might have translators on the ground working with each other where you know indians are speaking english and uh, the translators are tra- translating between you know indians speaking in english and the japanese uh, then translating it to the their language and essentially collaborate to build the satellite but uh, essentially operations are very seamless where you see you know just data coming in the 
thing interesting about the aviation world is that uh, it's a very people to people kind of communication business where uh, you know the handoff is not completely automated it's not like today machines are handing off uh, taking off and landing of aircrafts and the atc and the people at the atc are all machines they're essentially people that are uh, talking to each other and as you said english has established as a language and for that i think the the parallel that you could see is for example in the international space station where uh, americans and uh, russians collaborate heavily uh, both mm. of them try to learn each other's language so that uh, there's seamless operation so russians for example don't want to give up their language because they have uh, you know they want to stick to russian and uh, their local language is russian and they've been conducting space activities in russian and at the same time americans don't want to give up on english so you see even the space suits having both the english and russian for example and oh, uh, all so the manuals yeah so so essentially you know in that case there are two countries that have matched their skills and matched their capabilities so you have two languages that have emerged but in the aviation world i guess the us was so far ahead that uh, english became default and uh, you know a lot of the uh, technology was transferred to other countries and uh, and you know that made english the more preferred language but it seems uh, you know it we'll have to see how things uh, go uh, and who will emerge uh, in such a scenario in the whole uh, space scene true very interesting and like you like you mentioned uh, these are this probably is the initial days of of space research uh, do you have any interesting story for us i mean if we go earlier i i'll stay away from the current scenario but i was reading something very interesting uh, about steven smith somewhere in 1930 who was actually looking at rockets i think he was uh, he was doing this somewhere in bengal if i'm not mistaken but i don't know if i got that fact right yeah absolutely since uh, i just read that book uh, last week it's from a friend of mine called uh, gorbir who is uh, a british indian and uh, he researched on this and i didn't know by myself uh, even having you know been in the sector for 10 years in india that uh, guy like uh, stephen smith existed in 1930s and he was one of the sole experimenters on uh, rockets in india we all know for example uh, tipu sultan was uh, one of the pioneers of rockets and after the chinese uh, you know the tipu sultan was using these uh, uh, bamboo rockets against the british and uh, eventually the british took those rockets and uh, after sir tipu sultan was defeated they took those rockets and used it in the napoleonic wars and uh, you know that that's how the rocket technology eventually landed up in in europe but then you oh, know it's fascinating yeah it's yeah, fascinating absolutely. to see how uh, for example uh, you know in the 1930s you had this guy stephen smith who was initially a police officer and then uh, you know was a dentist uh, and then you know he became passionate about uh, aerophilately where uh, people would uh, send mail for example using aircraft and he would collect that and eventually he thought uh, rocket mail would become uh, the normal because uh, for you to send a package from uh, let's say europe to india by air it might have taken several days during that time but he thought you know eventually rockets will send these mail or carry these letters from europe to india or any place to any other place within a matter of hours and he wanted to be a pioneer in india in offering that kind of service and he also saw that uh, during disaster during floods or during other uh, challenging geographies one could use these rockets to transport uh, food and resources to you know people who wanted it uh, and save several days or save several hours uh, in uh, in providing them aid so un- unfortunately 
none of this is really well known in the uh, you know in today's science communication realm in india and i hope uh, people have a look at uh, you know uh, these kind of lost characters in the whole uh, you know uh, indian history absolutely that's so that's so interesting because uh, like you said we are just getting into this new phase or into uh, this new stage at the moment and uh, these characters are so interesting uh just to get back to uh, you you mentioned uh, you know what what actually happened in the good old days and moving forward and and what are your what are your thoughts on for all this to happen or for all this to take off economic uh, aspect of it because i think currently i was reading somewhere uh, i mean a figure i don't know if it's true that it costs about $10000 to get a single pound of mass into low earth orbit if that's the kind of uh, money we're talking about is that first of all the kind of money we are talking about and where where do we generate this kind of of capital from yeah uh, again you know since uh, this is a topic that is hotly contested all the time saying uh, it costs a lot mm. to get into space uh, one right. could also look at uh, you know the established realm again unfortunately going back to the aviation world the first yeah, travelers yeah. that used aircraft were business people yeah right. because business people could afford travel and they wanted mm. to get to places quickly and they didn't mind paying a higher uh, fare uh, just because they saved time and energy in getting to a place and you know getting their business done and coming back and uh, only after uh, maybe a decade or so i guess uh, the whole aviation world moved from having business travelers to also having you know uh, normal econ- economy based or premium economy kind of fares and today you see how much of that has reduced uh, in terms of uh, super economy and you know low cost airlines and all of these things none of these existed you know 70 or 80 years back it was basically business travelers saying uh, there are 20 seats on this aircraft and i'm going to fly to from us to uh, to europe and i'm going to pay whatever so many thousand dollars uh, to get, to get there and i can afford to do that because i want to save time and not be on a ship for two months so mm-hmm. uh, so that's where again the space uh, exploration is because today as you said uh, maybe 15 years ago uh, a kilogram uh, would have costed uh, $100,000 per kilogram mm. uh, to to get to space but today that's uh, reduced to let's say $5,000 because of SpaceX and others so there's a 24fold decrease of cost per kilogram over the last 15 years and uh, so now the question is if uh, if the industry matures and there's more fl- more flights that are happening more things that are happening and more demand coming as was the case with uh, the aviation world uh, do we see another 15 fold decrease in the next 15 years just with space exploration you'll have uh, opportunities for a lot of other ancillary avenues for example space food or space uh, suits is part of space travel uh, things like uh, you you will have a i think you need to have a whole new marketing concept to branding you will so i think it's just not space or people who are directly involved in research and and travel or exploration mm-hmm. but there will be a lot of ancillary support needed and i think a great example for this is is at the moment is nasa because it's a brand on its own uh, the way nasa markets itself if you get onto a nasa website and you look at the merchandise you look at uh the the high high definition photographs that are available uh they're engaging with people regularly on uh 
you know, on, on, on social network. I was reading somewhere that Britney Spears was, uh, they had actually roped in Britney Spears recently to promote one of their missions as well. So I think uh, holistically, uh, that's, a, that's a great approach to take because at some level, you have got to get people involved. You've got to get people excited because that's where the resource and the, and the uh, finance is ultimately going to come from, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I uh, couldn't uh, agree more. So it all depends on, uh, you know, how the the market evolves, because if we are stuck in governments telling us what to do and what not to do, and, you know, government saying we are the only controllers of all of these activities, then it might not go anywhere because uh, there's only so much money that any government can spend on an industry or uh, keeping an industry alive. And, uh, you know, let's say we had uh, 70 years ago, uh, government saying only bureaucrats and uh, diplomats can fly air travel. And uh, we will not allow uh, common people or businessmen to travel uh, by air. How would uh, the, you know, the whole industry evolve? I guess people like you and your colleagues in the, in the field are trying to break out from and whatever support you guys need from, from the rest of us will always be there. And uh, get, getting back to Elon Musk and his SpaceX, and you have Bezos and Blue Origin as well. Can we spend a little bit of time trying to understand, we can start with uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX. What exactly is happening with SpaceX? What is the idea behind that? How did he actually start? Uh, so a lot of people can, can listen to you and understand a little bit more because, you know, otherwise there's bits and pieces coming out of what he's doing now. But... If you would have to break this down? Essentially, I think uh, the story of SpaceX is of one that uh, challenges the status quo of uh, the industry and creates a leapfrogging kind of moment. And the leapfrogging kind of moment comes when you change the entire base of how technology operates to, you know, change an order of magnitude in cost. And, uh, uh, you know, that's how you, you change the whole base. So... For example, right, uh, the, as I said, you know, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, the cost per kilogram of an uh, of object to be sent into space was about, about $100,000. And if you have to change an order of magnitude of that, it's $100,000 to $10,000. And that's a very, very, very steep, uh, you know, change that you have to make. And that cannot be made by just cutting cost or, you know, uh, moving the production to a lower cost base or, you know, uh, trying to do something else. But it comes by, you know, changing the base of technology by which you can then derive this lower cost uh, possible. And essentially what SpaceX did and it realized is that you could not sustain an industry by just flying rockets and you know losing them every single time because every engine costs a lot of money to build for example you know the the engine that uh, uh, nasa is now trying to build the sls which is uh, the the biggest rocket in the world that people uh, right. you know will see will want to see fly for example you know they are paying i think 126 million dollars per engine wow per so, engine Per engine, that is, right? So that's a huge rocket that uh, intends to carry people to, you know, moon and other places. But then you imagine, you know, even uh, you losing that engine. So you have, let's say, four engines there uh, on your rocket. And essentially, you're, you're, and every the, those engines are not going to be reused. So they'll go into space and they'll never come back, for example. 
So it's like every time you spend $500 million and you lose that, and it's it's the equivalent of sending a, an Airbus uh, you know, aircraft up into uh, air, and you say this aircraft is not going to, never going to come back and we're never going to use it. Mm. And wow. uh, how can you function as an industry if you say that every time I need to buy a new Airbus aircraft for ferrying, uh, for example, my passengers and never use it again? And uh, mm. so which means that, you know, the, the cost of an air ticket, for example, is quite low because the uh, aviation industry and the airlines are using the aircraft again and again and again. There's hardly like half an hour between a crew, you know, changing and then the pilots changing and the passengers, new passengers stepping in because you're just taking the time to just clean the aircraft while others step in, right? So, right. and uh, so, so, and then it's the, it's a 24 hour kind of operation where you're using the space, same aircraft between just two airports or whatever, multiple routes. And that's the logic, I guess, uh, that, you know, SpaceX is trying to bring uh, to the space sector where essentially one would say that earlier for the last 60 years, we've been flying rockets like uh, Diwali rockets where you just ignite them and you lose mm. them every single time. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, the, the whole idea now that the SpaceX guys and the others are trying to say is that we can learn a lot from the aviation industry and bring these rockets back and reuse them uh, many times. Currently, you know, these rockets are being used, let's say, 10 times reused. Uh, but what if you could use it 100 times or 1,000 times? Wow. Oh, that, that, that just thinking of that and those kind of, that kind of scaling, because, yeah, I agree with you. I think that was what... SpaceX uh, originally started with as unique, you know, reusing most of it. And it's interesting, I think uh, the Falcon 9 rocket, if I'm not mistaken, is probably scheduled for liftoff somewhere within the next few days. Probably, I, I think that its first 19-hour uh, journey with uh, humans on board, right, or with astronauts on board, and they are taking them to the space station. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, imagine that a company like SpaceX, uh, which is hardly uh, maybe what, uh, maybe 20 years or something in the making uh, is, uh, you know, is beating a company like Boeing or Lockheed, who've been existing for 100 years in doing this. Wow. And I think that's uh, the Demo 2 mission. And I, is it true that they would be actually carrying uh, astronauts to the space station, right? Yeah, it's a crewed flight for the first time, yeah. Wow. Okay, that's the first of its kind. And how how would you how would you differentiate? Let's say uh, I I think we are quite uh, you define SpaceX and why it's unique very clearly. What about Blue Origin and and Jeff Bezos? Because these are two names that people tend to uh, talk about in a binary way when we talk about uh, currently about the space exploration. So how is Blue Origin different in what it's doing? I think uh, you know uh, Blue Origin has. Uh, of course, you know, it's a rocket company, which is very similar to SpaceX, but I think uh, you have to view this in the larger realm of the whole Amazon business. Uh, mm. Because, you know, what uh, Jeff Bezos is doing is uh, he's owning the uh, a rocket company, which is trying to build rockets. And he's also put in money into a, a project that uh, wants to deliver internet from space all over the world. Okay. So, uh, so these satellites need to be flown and he might use his own company to fly these uh, satellites. But essentially what, would the, what this might do is it might give uh, connectivity infrastructure to the entire world. 
and uh, of course he has quite deep pockets uh, you know he in multiple interviews he said that he invests about a billion dollars uh, of his uh, shares that he kind of uh, sells every years in stock so that he can keep funding blue origin and it's like right. you know a pet project that he funds so that uh, the infrastructure is in place but essentially i guess you know the view is that uh, you are kind of creating the sea cables the undersea cables where people are going to connect and because of that you can see all this e-commerce marketplaces built and you know all this commerce happening uh, and essentially mm. the view is that these satellites and this infrastructure that people are going to put up like uh, jeff bezos is planning to do are the undersea cables between continents that will enable transactions to happen wow so that is the basis or that is the original plan for blue that is a blueprint for blue original yeah yeah essentially and uh, and it's very interesting because uh, you know these uh, uh, there's a very interesting interview of uh, jeff bezos where he talks about uh, you know like um, you know people that the earth is kind of very limited in its resources and uh, you know the number of people who can stay on earth is all uh, quite limited and what if we had uh, you know uh, an ecosystem where we think about a larger solar system and you know multiple play you know uh, interplanetary communities that are alive and there's transactions happening between multiple interplanetary communities and you know resources being exchanged and people trading and you know people existing and uh, there's kind of uh, an insurance uh, against you know uh, one place uh, being destroyed by an asteroid or some other space impact and so on so i guess these are all very 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 far in the future but uh, mm. you know they they they're kind of starting small with it but essentially the larger view is that uh, you don't view uh, you know just earth as the the only place that people can live but essentially there's more that we could do and we could do as explorers uh, you know create communities all over the uh, all over the solar system and even uh, even outside of it absolutely and i think that's a given you know uh, we can all see that that we are going to be spacefaring uh, a spacefaring race and we will be moving to other uh, planetary systems but even like you spoke uh, earlier i'm just thinking about what you just said with blue origin and what you said about scaling and the way costs are coming down i'm trying to connect your druva uh, your your druva mission on what you are we far away from in that case i mean if at the moment i own a company and i'm looking for data i need to go through probably three or four levels but somewhere in the future i mean i can look out at my house and i have a dish antenna on each roof now would maybe every company would have their own satellite if satellites can be built that way and cost is going the way it is every company could have their own satellites and mine the data they want uh, by themselves is that even a possibility yeah it, i mean every satellite every company may not uh, want to have its own satellite but may use uh, some kind of a space service so for example mm. let's say you know uh, i have an example last uh, two years ago i was in china for example right and uh, uh, disney had invested into a new uh, theme park in china and uh, nobody knew how much investment was there uh, going into it and how well it did and what would be for example its impact on uh, disney shares of for example right and uh, uh essentially you know the guys at uh, one of the uh, funds the equity you know investment funds they used space data to map what are the lines in each of the uh, you know entertainment whatever shows uh mm-hmm. 
you know where people could get on these rides and and they could see what are the lines there and match that with the individual prices of uh, the line of the you know thing and with that they could predict uh, you know to a reasonable extent what is the economic activity and where would the profitability reach so that they can make a decision on buy and sell of the shares wow so so essentially you know it's about how you use space to your advantage and to your business and uh, and you know either deliver profit or deliver service to the society so at the same time for example you know uh, two years ago when there was the floods in kerala the government there used uh, satellite data from all over the world to create a risk map to know where are the floods hitting people the most and because the state has limited resources it has let's say 80 uh, helicopters rescue helicopters you without having on the ground information as to where are the people most affected you can't make a decision on where to send those helicopters because essentially you will be then just uh, shooting in the dark hoping that there's people wherever you send those place, helicopters right so satellites mm-hmm. can be those uh, eyes then and say these are the hot zones this is where you need to send these uh, assets so you know that's a societal application uh, it's so interesting you mentioned that because i think there's a there's a great current example for what you just said because i think satellite data was also used to monitor china's recovery from the current uh, corona wide uh, corona virus uh, recession if i'm not, not mistaken they were using that data to actually see how china was doing am i right Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is something that uh, people have been trying uh, a lot because it's also about, for example, food security. If, uh, you know, mm. if I could track how much grain is in the entire world, uh, I could, tra- you know, track if uh, the food is uh, going to be a shortage because of climate change over the coming years. It could be about minerals, for example, if I'm trading in metal, in, in aluminum, for example. If I could track, uh, you know, the, the ores, I could uh, create an index for uh, what would be the price of aluminum and look at uh, making business decisions on top. People use satellite data to look at uh, how much oil is being produced so that uh, they can keep track of, uh, you know, players in the oil market uh, to see how much they are producing and selling. Wow. and i'm sure a lot of us listening here are just amazed by the actual opportunities thinking from a private uh, from a private business point of view and at the same time there's so much information that uh, still needs to get out there so why don't we talk a little bit about you have been in something that you have been involved with and uh, isro you know that's a great story for for all of us for i think uh, uh, globally everybody looks at isro as something where uh, you have a lot of high achievers resources could be limited you could consider but the results have just been stunning so far so why don't you just tell us on on what are your views with uh, what isro is doing and the chandrayaan mission anything interesting that our viewers would like to hear that they've not read or heard before so you you know you're the inside guy why don't you give us a little bit of information on that Sure, I think, uh, you know, ISRO, when you look at ISRO, it's a fascinating institution because uh, it's an institution unlike uh, many of the institutions that we have in India that was created after the Indian independence. Uh, you know, it, uh, it it's an institution that ha- was forced to, you know, build its own technology and come up with the basis of it and innovate quite a lot. Of course, it had uh, quite a lot of international collaboration that it also helped in the progress. But... Uh, but i think you know today uh, when you look at uh, a lot of the isro activity there 
very good at a few things and uh, there's also quite a lot of room for improvement on a lot of things so mm. it's no mean feat to to say that uh, you are the first country in the world to you know fly a spacecraft to mars uh, in its first attempt and be successful with it and that's a, a fascinating uh, you know achievement that uh, almost no country was able to do it in the first attempt and you could uh, achieve that uh, so again with isro i think uh, we have established a foundation in technology and a foundation in human resource and infrastructure that uh, helps young people in india you know be passionate about space and uh, think of building things that are using satellites and you know rockets and so on so that's uh, that in itself takes several several decades of work uh, so except you know india and china for example there's hardly any other developing country that has been successful in in establishing a really good space program right the brazilians mm-hmm. have tried it you know there's uh, so many other countries that have in the developing country realm even for example south africa is south africa is trying to do uh, some of it as well there's many other countries that are uh, in the developing world but that have tried to establish a space program and uh, have not uh, achieved this kind of success that india and china have uh, achieved uh, so that you know talks about the ingenious uh, people that uh, you know that isro has and so on but, but again you know these are very kind of early days where uh, we have established a certain amount of technology and a certain amount of uh, manpower and infrastructure now the question is how effectively can we use this to create uh, economic development for the people and uh, social development of the people and how uh, well have is the integration uh, for this uh, you know to benefit the country mm, that's so interesting because the i think with uh, isro uh, with isro and the chandrayaan what would you uh, how would you define there they could be i mean there, there may be so many areas or there may so there be so many different uh, Uh, combinations that come together but uh, would there be something easy for our listeners to know what was unique about chandrayaan so uh, you know how was it able to achieve what it did when nobody else could do so is there some specific technical or breakthrough idea that uh, that was used so uh, i guess you know the both the chandrayaan and mangalyaan unique uh, missions are kind of quite uh, unique because uh, chandrayaan and mangalyaan in my view are uh, not uh, very space science uh, oriented missions but more as technology demonstration missions so essentially mm. you know with chandrayaan for example you had uh, payloads from multiple countries uh, which was which enabled the collaboration between india and several of these countries to for india to you know provide the vehicle where these uh, other payloads can be accommodated alongside some indian payloads and that you know enabled the discovery of uh, the water molecules or uh, on uh, the moon for example right so uh, again in the case of mangalyaan uh, these are uh, very strategic you know uh, decision making on how we will approach the the mission because essentially you know this is the first time that india is kind of trying to do and they limited the scope of uh, uh, the the mission to having to attain the orbit around mars and you know uh, putting a mm. spacecraft there so you could then focus on having the technology on you know having engines for example uh, fire at the right time having navigation right. you know uh, capabilities that uh, that could see that your spacecraft was uh, you know ha- 
uh, could be tracked and could be communicated with at that distances. So those were the first attempts because sending a spacecraft uh, at 500 kilometers uh, to 36,000 kilometers to then, you know, 300,000 kilometers, which is the, the moon, for example, uh, they are kind of different uh, in terms of uh, being able to communicate with them and being able to track them and being able to operate them and so on. And in case of Mars, it becomes even more complicated because you have a 20 minute time lag. Mm. Uh, so the spacecraft must be kind of autonomous. So you need to build the spacecraft to be intelligent enough so that it can take some of the decisions on its own. And and so those are things that, uh, you know, were the building blocks of all of this. But now the question is that uh, as these missions have given us the technology platform and have made, uh, you know, us to secure this uh, mindset or this uh, showcase the success where that we are able to, you know, build interplanetary missions. Now the question is, are we going to build missions that are going to look at new evidence, new science, you know, new things that people have not uh, seen or discovered yet? Right. And I think one of that would also be something that was uh, that was in the news, I think, recently, where ISRO received, uh, I mean, ISRO was involved in the highland soil stimulant for future lunar missions. I think that was quite an achievement as well. Yeah, uh, that's uh, essentially, I guess, uh, they found uh, some place in uh, Tamil Nadu where uh, some of the soil could be, uh, you know, uh, similant uh, uh, to the to the moon and they are just trying to, I guess, uh, use that to, you know, do some tests uh, for the rover uh, that they want to put up on the moon. Uh, very interesting. I, I, I thought that was interesting. What about the, how, how are we going with the, uh, with the Gaganyan mission? I mean, I know that Currently, uh, I, I don't know if training is still on. Uh, it's in Russia, if I'm not mistaken, and probably it stopped because of the corona. Uh, do you have any uh, any background on that? And what do we plan? Probably that's going to be the first time we are sending uh, humans into space, right? So like you were just saying, you're, you're looking at something new. You're looking at a new avenue. Does that satisfy you as a new avenue, uh, Narayan? Mm, not really, to be very honest with you. Of course, we had sent, uh, you know, Rakesh Sharma, uh, as the first uh, Indian cosmonaut to uh, right. to space, but, but that was through the Russian collaboration. Uh, mm -hmm. But then this whole uh, Gaganyan mission, I think the uh, biggest aspect to that is the more motivational and inspirational aspect of uh, inspiring young people to look at space uh, and science and technology uh, and be inspired by uh, such a feat. But uh, beyond that, I think uh, human spaceflight missions are very expensive. And mm. uh, uh, the dividends of human spaceflight mission takes uh, quite a long time to, to you know, seep into the, uh, to the society. Quite. Of course, there's multiple examples where technology built for human spaceflight have been used uh, in the society. But of course, it takes its own time. Uh, but then for a country like India, I think there's quite a lot of... Uh, you know, opportunity to integrate just satellite-based services into many of the sectors like agriculture or energy or, you know, infrastructure. There's so much to do that uh, I, in my personal opinion, I think uh, those might be more beneficial because you can first lift your people out of poverty using technology and in the support mm -hmm. and using space as a, as a tool in uh, creating economic value and economic development for people. And then look at uh, all of these other things. Right. And what about this? Uh, there was also talk about the space docking experiment that 
would be conducted uh, within the next couple of years maybe at ISRO. Uh, is that to do with uh, uh, launch facilities and is space docking uh, a very integral part of this or do we need to develop that uh, or are we dependent uh, on somebody else for that? So this uh, space docking is interesting in two perspectives. One is if uh, India decides to build a space station and mm -hmm. uh, you know there's a station that is flying around the earth and uh, you know you have the crew that is going in and coming out. Uh, so every time you have to go in then you have to dock with the station. And so right. the technology can be used for uh, such a scenario where India plans to have a space station and you know we will use this technology to home into kind of the station and uh, you know dock there. The second bit is if India wants to do any kind of uh, you know in orbit servicing which is basically refueling its satellites up in orbit like uh, you know military satellites, uh, military aircraft for example gets uh, refueled up in air for example. Uh, it, a similar scenario can also be uh, looked at from space where for example last uh, month I think uh, one of the US companies demonstrated refueling a satellite uh, up in uh, space. Right, right, correct. So, so yeah, essentially, uh, you know, that's the, uh, you know, the two different angles that I see. Of course, there's also a military angle to this if, uh, for example, you want to, you know, uh, look at uh, approaching a, a military uh, target that you have and, uh, you know, want to do some kind of scouting around it or uh, want to grab it or you want to capture some of it or or so on. So it, it could be used uh, militarily as well. So there's that uh, angle to, to this. Right. And does, uh, yeah, does the ASAT test, is it in line with the same thing? Because that did talk about uh, uh, the ability using that technology to, to uh, target objects in space. Uh, so the military test that uh, that uh, the ASAT test is more about uh, demonstrating that India too has the capability to target satellites because uh, the Chinese has had done that uh, in 2007 and uh, right. there was this uh, you know uh, rel uh, there was uh, talks in India that uh, there could be laws that prevent India to do such tests in the future because what happened is with nuclear tests for example after you know, the, the US, Russia and uh, some other countries did nuclear tests. Immediately there was an international ban on nuclear tests and other countries could not do it and there would be sanctions on countries doing it. So essentially, you know, the whole thing about anti-satellite tests is that people in the international policy making and lawmakers, you know, they uh, thought that uh, after a couple of countries have demonstrated anti-satellite tests like US and Russia and even now the Chinese had done, that there would be an international law saying that people will not be allowed to do anti-satellite tests in space. Um, mm. So this this was the kind of the baseline or the foundation based on which uh, the the Indian government had to take a call if it wanted to do the ASAT tests or not. And it uh, it it did do this after 13 years uh, or you know maybe I think 10 year, 12 years after the Chinese did. Yeah. And and the uh, like you were you were mentioning early when it uh, earlier when it comes to uh, probably ISRO I think there was a great announcement that came out last week uh, by the government where uh, ISRO facilities could be used by uh, players in the private uh, space and I just want to come to this particular uh, topic right now because I'm sure there are a lot of starry-eyed uh, young uh, listeners at the same time there are people who are interested in 
developing or moving into this particular area. This announcement is huge because uh, you will have support and facilities. I think uh, besides launch facilities, uh, sharing of data will become very important so people can have access to that while they are performing these experiments. But just moving uh, a gear towards the private sector now, what are the opportunities you see here? People listening to you, uh, guys who have always been interested in getting into the space field, which are the areas you see uh, that will open up and how big is this announcement? I think it's a massive change uh, from the legacy because uh, earlier there was no real uh, government policy or acknowledgement of uh, you know private space sector as a potential uh, in uh, creating a new industry altogether. Uh, because, you know, when you look at it from uh, comparing to industries, I believe space uh, industry has the same potential as uh, how the IT industry or the biotech industry in India took off. Uh, because we have all the infrastructure, we have the manpower, we have, uh, you know, a lot of skill, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, enthusiastic people trying to do entrepreneurial stuff. So I think uh, the timing of it is is still late because this could have been done maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago and many more people could have uh, done a lot of things by then. But then it's not too late as well where today, you know, these announcements are coming, but we'll have to see how it's uh, implemented and uh, how this is going to pass on benefits to the industry. Right. And you would also be, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people at the moment who are talking about these opportunities, how this is actually going to open up or help uh, in, in, in this particular space. And for people who are listening to us, I think uh, they would also be interested in knowing, uh, we were talking earlier when it came down to ISRO about uh, the future missions that it plans. And you said it has to be futuristic as well. Do you have any suggestions that you would put or you would put on the table that we are not thinking about currently but should be thought about? Something that's close to your heart or something that you strongly believe in is something that needs to be part of the agenda? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, at the moment, uh, we have not integrated space as much as we could do with uh, all the sectors that need development. So, for example, you know, one of the companies that I had a chat with uh, last month is using satellite data to help uh, fishermen. They have an app where uh, they tell fishermen where the fish is and they could safely navigate there and they also give them feed on the current weather so that fishermen don't get stuck in waters and their life is not under uh, threat in the, in the seas. And at the same time, they help fishermen to also access the market where once they have their catch, they, they can sell their catch uh, in the marketplace. So you see that they use satellite data in such an inventive way where they use satellite positioning uh, to give them the location, the satellite uh, image data to tell them where the fish is. So you have an overall benefit where you have affected the life and safety of the fishermen. You've increased the catch by 50% because instead of, of them going randomly to places to get their fish, they know exactly where the fish is. And at the same time, you know, you've uh, affected the environment because uh, studies show that, uh, you know, the fuel consumption becomes less because you know where you're going in the ocean, right? And uh, you also access the market. So you see that, uh, you know, this forms the foundation of how technology can be used to affect change and give, uh, you know, economic development to the most basic, uh, you know, uh, industries or sectors. 
So this is just an example from the fishery sector, and you could have multiple sectors in, uh, you know, in agriculture for farmers. It could be for several other sectors that you could uh, think about and do a very deep integration of uh, technology, helping those sectors, and uh, you know, creating uh, value for all of them. And I think that uh, that is something that we kind of need to focus on in the next uh, 10 or 15 years where we can become leaders in how space is uh, used as a tool in economic development. That's such an inspiring story, actually. Just listening to you, I was trying to picture it with uh, what you were saying about that's actually very true with, you know, how technology and, and space technology can actually be used to bring practical benefits to people right here on the ground. That That's absolutely amazing. And earlier we did speak about uh, Blue Origin. We spoke about SpaceX. Why don't you tell us uh, uh, something that uh, maybe smaller companies are doing today? There are interesting things on the horizon. You want to tell us anything that you think or, uh, is coming out that a particular group, an organization, a private company is doing that you find interesting? Yeah, I think uh, there's uh, quite a lot of interesting companies in India that are coming up, uh, you know, f- in that sense. For example, I see a company, for example, called Satsure, which is based in uh, Bangalore. And uh, they are trying to integrate the whole of uh, space data into the farming sector, where essentially they can solve the problem of uh, getting farmers, uh, you know, access to to finances through institutional money. As we know, for example, still in India, about 30-40% of the you know, banking uh, happens outside of the institutions where people are borrowing from landlords or, uh, you know, uh, essentially villagers are depending on uh, high interest rate uh, loans that they take personally from, uh, not from banks, from but from, you know, uh, landlords within their villages, so for example, right? So, uh, and for example, the problem there is that uh, the banks, they don't have any basis to make decisions on how the credit worthiness of a farmer is, for example. Uh, and, you know, they are trying to come up with models where uh, they are going to look at satellite data for the last seven years on the farm that the farmer comes from and look at how productive that farm is and then try to create a risk index on, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, good or bad that loan can be. And if the farmer says, I'm going to grow, you know, rice in this season here, they can do an analysis on how productive that land has been in the last seven years and tell the bank, for example, how risky this investment is. So the banks can use that as a basis of uh, decision making. Uh, And this is for the first time such uh, scientific evidence can be used in uh, the whole decision making process. So, uh, for example, there is another company in Delhi called uh, Blue Sky Analytics that is trying to create... uh, a kind of a Bloomberg for uh, air quality uh, data. So they are trying to use uh, Mm. space and ground-based sensors to come up with indexes that uh, look at air quality around different localities and how that can be integrated into several, uh, you know, sectors, be it insurance or, you know, policy making or so on. And then you could look at how to improving uh, the air quality around uh, major Indian cities, which are extremely polluted, right? So... Uh, and I already gave you the example of the fishermen. So so there are all these companies that are coming up and uh, some of the companies that are trying to build uh, rockets uh, like Skyroot and uh, Agnikul and some of the companies are trying to build uh, satellites like Pixel and Kava Space or, or Druva Space, for example. All of these people can kind of come together to complement kind of each other and, uh, you know, build build this so that the end goal is to service these kind of uh, 
challenges in the country. And 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 that's really true because the reason I wanted you to mention uh, certain names and why I wanted to get into that was uh, I, I just hope people get inspired. You know, we need more participation. We need more people to think that like other companies right here, uh, you could contribute as well. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who after listening to, the, to you speaking, uh, there's, there's definitely going to be some action on their side. If not uh, moving towards concrete action, then to understand a little bit more about the sector and how they can contribute. So to just come back to what you mentioned earlier, something just struck me, where you said the last seven years data would be checked uh, regarding satellite, uh, through satellite data about the crops. How, how would, considering the current uh, climate changes and conditions, which seem to be changing every second day, does the weather patterns also be taken into that, into account? Yeah, weather is actually a huge uh, part of it and uh, that, that is also a place where uh, satellite data affects quite a bit because uh, the weather is, uh, is a very dynamic phenomena and you need both, uh, you know, ground-based, air-based and uh, space-based sensors to kind of m bring models to it. Sorry, I think if after human emotion, I would put weather right there. If you can, <laughs> if you can control these two things, you can control, you can control a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And even even like you said, with uh, the future, what are, do you see in the next, let's say, 10 to 12 years? Uh, so if I would have asked somebody 10, 12 years ago, there are certain uh, careers that nobody would have dreamt were, were giving you this kind of uh, results. For example, uh, data scientist, data mining, uh, you know, uh, somebody who's into coding. Where do you see this particular field? And what do you think are going to be uh, specific skill sets or job opportunities that people can develop that you see opening up that are not yet there, they are on the horizon, but you see these specific areas could turn out into lucrative uh, career options for people. Right. Uh, again, you know, we could uh, take an inspiration from uh, an established sector like the aviation sector. Uh, you know, in the beginning, the, the fighter pilots were the only ones who were flying a lot of these aircrafts and you know, the civilian uh, pilots came up and uh, you had uh, flying schools teaching how to fly. Uh, so all of that happened in the aviation sector. And then you had uh, entrepreneurs thinking that they would run uh, aviation and, you know, use buy, and, uh, buy aircraft and run their own airline and sell tickets where they, they could ferry people. And, and then you had airports built where people thought, you know, there'd be a lot of commerce of people traveling between airports and they could buy and sell uh, stuff uh, in those airports and have economic activity going. Uh, and you had, you know, cabin crew who were professional and uh, you created a whole, uh, you know, job sector just for the cabin crew itself. So essentially what I'm trying to say is that uh, as the industry grows, uh, the number of opportunities and the number of jobs and the kind of the nature of jobs uh, will also evolve and there'll be a tremendous amount of new opportunities that will come up. We all think that, you know, either uh, astrophysicists or scientists or engineers who are trying to build rockets are mostly the end of the, the job phenomena in the space sector. But that's not the case where you, if you imagine uh, the industry having evolved to a certain extent, you could imagine having tremendously different kinds of uh, uh, jobs being created. And, uh, you know, I was just uh, fascinated to see, for example, there was an announcement, I think I saw on Twitter, uh, saying uh, we are looking for uh, uh, somebody who can handle the, the psychology of, uh, uh, you know, space tourists. And that's a job uh, <laughs> that somebody was advertising uh -huh. for. 
you're going to have you're going to have space caterers you're going to have space food uh uniforms you know i i i think you're right there's going to be so much that's going to come out of this right yeah it all you know as industry evolves new jobs coming in and new things need uh, need to be done it all depends on how we are going to get the activity economic activity going and how you're going to get uh, more people involved in space and more activity going and I, i think that will eventually create all these kinds of new opportunities so narayanan before we let you go here at indian genes i think uh, you've been extremely patient your information has been uh, engrossing to all of us here and we're hoping we could probably talk to you again uh, let us know please uh, uh, narayan what do you plan to do moving forward if you can share with us how where do you see yourself going and what are you going to get involved in anything that uh, you would like to put out or if people want to listen uh, listen to you again listen more about you i do know that you are running the very very interesting and that's something i follow as well uh, the new space india uh, podcast that's an excellent podcast and i definitely recommend all my listeners to please go there uh what would you like to tell our listeners uh narayan sure so firstly thank you again for the opportunity to come as a guest and you know speak my mind uh, often i am the host and uh, i'm asking questions uh but essentially <laughs> i think uh, you know my uh, goal is to see a very vibrant uh, space community in india to uh you know to expand their uh, the horizon from uh, just uh, the whole isro realm to also having you know the uh, it could be schools it could be colleges it could be industry it could be ngos it could be many other groups amateur groups all participating in space much more so that the benefits of it are passed down to the society and uh, the new space india platform as you said is a community where we are trying to create uh, you know this enthusiasm and you know about uh, 10 years ago when uh, we were looking at all of this uh, there were hardly any you know traditional uh, S- there were mostly traditional smes in india who were serving isro and the space program but uh, you know in the last 10 years we've had uh, 30 or 40 startups come in in the in the sector in india and that's a big change and uh, you know will we see the change from 0 to 30 in uh, or 30 to 40 in 10 years can we see a change of uh, you know 40 to 400 in the next 10 years and that's uh, very exciting because as uh, young people will come in new skills will come and you know new enthusiasm will come and then there's uh, lots of new resources available for them and uh, you can see that 10 years ago the venture capitalists were hardly participating in the space sector in india today there's uh, you know people who are putting in uh, lots of money into the sector and funding these ideas uh, that were considered crazy 10 years ago but today those venture capitalists are funding some of these companies and when we see more such people fund new crazy ideas in the next 10 years you know those are very 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 exciting things and interesting things uh, that are going to happen in the next few years and i am hoping that uh, we will see uh, you know in the future where india is uh, like any other uh, sector where you have indian industry being successful in the pharmaceutical world for example india is shipping indian companies are shipping medicines to 150 countries in the world uh, i want to see a day where uh, indian space companies are doing business with 150 countries in the world and creating products and services uh, that impact the whole world totally agree with you and uh, uh, 
uh, Narayan, we at Indian Genes as well, for you, for your colleagues, in, in whatever way you want to use this platform, if you ever want to, if any of y'all ever want to pass a message out there, we are always open because like you said, or we said at the very beginning, uh, the idea here is to generate interest. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's what we can do. Uh, the experts can uh, do the magic. I, I don't think I can do any magic, but I can definitely put out, uh, put you guys out there, uh, communicate with as many people as 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 should be, and and create create a buzz. Like you said, you know, it's it's the initial stage, but that's when the buzz needs to be pushed. Uh, we are trying our best as well, and from everybody here, uh, Naran at Indian Genes, it has been uh, a very engrossing time. Uh, I thank you for your patience. I know earlier we had some tef uh, technical difficulties, but uh, we are hoping that we can we will keep connected, uh, Narayan, and uh, maybe you're going to come back uh, and talk to us again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, uh, and I think uh, you know it's also very uh, you know motivating for me to kind of speak to you, and uh, it's very good to see enthusiasm uh, you know from you as well, and. Uh, uh, for you, for and, and I thank you for your efforts uh, in putting out such uh, interesting and insightful material in the world out there, and uh, which will possibly inspire. Uh, you know, even one person inspired by this is uh, is one more person added to the world. And uh, and again, thank you very much, and I'm happy to chat with you at any given point of time in the future. Thank you very much, Narayan. Thank you, and hope to see you again. Yeah, thank you. Bye bye.